Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, John chapter 8. Uh, John chapter 8, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this Gospel, we come this morning to John 8, verse 37, and my goal this morning is to cover verses 37 through 50, although we're going to take a peek into verse 51, and the title of the message this morning is Salvation, a Matter of Paternity. Salvation, a matter of paternity. And if you're wondering, the word paternity has to do with who your father is. I uh, grew up in a military uh, household with a, a Marine for a father. And one of the things that I noticed was that when we as kids, uh, when we were growing up and we were young and snotty, Uh, and we would argue with other kids, we usually did not argue with other kids about which of us was tougher. Uh, Especially, or what we would do instead is we would argue about whose dad was tougher and stronger, especially if the kid we were arguing with had a dad in the Navy. Uh, We argued about literally whose dad could beat the other kid's dad up. And our dad uh, had no idea that we were putting his name out there for a fight with other kids' dads, but we were. It's part of how we as kids asserted our own identity among our peers by bringing our dads into the conversation. And maybe you did uh, the same thing. In my high school years, I noticed how our moms started being brought into our verbal spats. Uh, During those years, it would often happen that if you put somebody down or you insulted somebody, the insulted person would reply by saying, your mama, (laughs) basically taking the insult that you had hurled at them and attaching that insult to your Mom, and that was always the end of the matter because there was nothing worse that a person could say to top that. In fact, I've never shared this with you before, um, but my therapist told me that I should. Uh, But I got in one fist fight during my high school years, and what provoked that fight was that a classmate of mine said something derogatory about my mom in one of those kinds of conversations. And I warned him repeatedly to stop. I told him, you can insult me all you want, but leave my mom out of it. And he turned right around and said something awful about my mom again, so I went after him. And I'm not recommending what I did for you or for your children. I was actually wrong in responding the way that I did, but I share this to illustrate something that we all know is true. There's something deeply personal about talking smack about someone's parents, because that goes to the core of who we are and where we come from. And I share all this to prepare you for what we're actually going to see in our passage 
for this morning. In all of the gospel accounts, I do not think there is a conversation that gets more ugly than the conversation that we will be witness to today. I don't think there's any other conversation that is more deeply and personally hurtful than what we're going to see transpiring in our text today, where we literally see both Jesus and his enemies talking to each other about each other's parents. If we were witnessing this conversation in person, we would be just feeling really awkward and uncomfortable. In our text today, Jesus' enemies will deliver some really ugly blows at Jesus regarding his paternity, and Jesus will outright tell them, your daddy is the devil, and then describe for them the awful person that their father is. In the end, though, we're going to learn that a person's paternity has everything to do with their salvation or the lack thereof. Now, before we get into the exchange that takes place in our passage today, let me very quickly set the stage uh, for us so that we can pick up where we left off last week. Remember that Jesus is in the Jerusalem temple and he has been engaging with the Jewish religious leaders there. He speaks truth um, about the members of his audience telling them that they will die in their sins unless they believe in him. But he also tells them that he is the light of the world and that they will have the light of life if they would only follow him. Thankfully, we saw in verse 30 how many people came to believe in Jesus in response to the things that they actually heard him say in this chapter. And then in verse 31, we saw how Jesus seeks to encourage the Jewish leaders who have just come to believe in him. And he says to them in verses 31 and 32, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. In verse 33, though, we see that the non-believing Jewish leaders take offense at what they have just heard Jesus say to their believing colleagues, and they say to Jesus, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Notice here how they bring up their ancestor or their father Abraham in this discussion with Jesus they obviously figured that because they were Abraham's offspring, they didn't need Jesus to set them free from anything because, after all, Abraham was their father. Last week, we studied Jesus' response to them in verses 34 to 36. The text says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And from this point forward, Jesus speaks six truths to these unbelieving religious leaders to give them perspective on his father and their father. And that's how we're going to break down our study of the text today. 
Uh, beginning in verse 37, we will observe six truths that Jesus speaks to his enemies to give them perspective on his father and on their father. And truth number one is this. Jesus says to them, you reject me and my word because our fathers are in conflict. You reject me and my word because our fathers are in conflict. There's a reason we're at odds with each other, and that's because our fathers are at odds with each other. Observe what he says to these men, beginning in verse 38. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. From what these men had said to Jesus in verse 33, it's evident that they took pride in being Abraham's descendants, being his offspring made them feel secure in their salvation, thinking that it made them automatic recipients of the promises that God had promised to Abraham and to his seed. And they didn't pluck this belief out of nowhere in Genesis 12. And in other passages, God promised to bless Abraham and to bless his seed. So these Jews took that to mean that they, being the seed of Abraham, were blessed of God by virtue of the fact that they were Abraham's descendants. In fact, just one reference, write this text down, Isaiah 41, verse 8, where God is speaking to Israel, and he says, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And then two verses later is the famous verse that we all love to apply to ourselves, do not fear for I am with you. Be not afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand and other promises follow. And the Jews took passages like this to heart and they believed that they were elected by God to be the recipients of blessing and salvation and that they had God on their side, all because they were Abraham's offspring. Yet in verse 37, Jesus teaches these men that they should find zero security for themselves in being Abraham's offspring. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants biologically, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak my word to you, Jesus says, yet there's no place in your heart where you have room to receive my saving word and allow it to do its work and to make any progress in you. Why was there no place in them for the word of Jesus? Why is it that they want to kill Jesus and be rid of him? Jesus explains why in verse 38, saying, I speak the things which I've seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. Jesus himself is a biological son of Abraham, 
just like the religious leaders that he is talking to were, but he speaks here in a way that makes it clear to them that he and these religious leaders do not have the same father. In summary, he's saying to them, it is because we have different fathers and because we are obeying different fathers that you seek to kill me and give my word no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. You do the things you've heard from your father and our fathers clearly are not one and the same. Now, Jesus hasn't come right out and identified who their father is, but these men catch the drift of what Jesus is saying enough to recognize that he is suggesting that they have different fathers. This provokes a defensive reply from them to which Jesus will respond, which leads us to the second truth, that Jesus speaks to his enemies to give them perspective on his father and their father. Number two, Jesus is essentially saying, your malice toward me shows that Abraham is not your true father. Your malice toward me shows that Abraham is not your true father. Observe how Jesus' enemies respond to him in verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And keep in mind that in making this claim, these men are actually saying two things. Jesus has just suggested that they have different fathers, right? So what they're really saying here is Abraham is our father and therefore, Jesus, Abraham must not be your father. They're saying to Jesus, if it is true that our fathers are different as you are suggesting, Jesus, then that means that Abraham can't be your father because we know that he is our father. Observe how Jesus responds to them in verses 39 and 40. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Whenever God spoke to Abraham in the Genesis account, we see that Abraham received those messages from God with faith and with obedience. And what was certainly a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, we are told that Yahweh appeared to Abraham with two other angels that looked like men. And when they appeared, Abraham received them with joy. He opened his heart to them and insisted on washing their feet and showing them hospitality with a meal. He warmly received the Lord who had come to him with a message. And yet here in John 8, Jesus is saying to these Jewish leaders, here I stand today, a messenger of the Lord, sent to speak to you the truth that I have heard from the Father. And what are you guys doing? 
you want to kill me. This kind of thing Abraham did not do whenever I appeared to him and spoke to him. You guys claim Abraham is your father, but you don't resemble Abraham at all. As shown by the fact that you don't treat me and you don't respond to me the way that Abraham did when I came to him and spoke to him. Then observe what Jesus says in verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. Again, Jesus isn't coming right out yet and saying who their father is, but he is making it clear that Abraham is not their true spiritual father because they couldn't be more unlike Abraham in the way that they're responding to Jesus, but they are acting like the one who is really their father. Jesus had to know that what he has just said to these men would anger them and escalate the conversation But Jesus was prepared for that and was ready with a reply, which leads us to the third truth that Jesus speaks to his enemies to give them perspective on his father and their father. Number three, he drops this bomb on them. God is not your father, but he is mine. God is not your father, but he is mine. Observe what Jesus' enemies do in the second part of verse 41 They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. I would agree with R. Kent Hughes and other commentators who suggest that for these men here in claiming to not be born of fornication, these men are taking a horrible swipe at Jesus. What they are saying to Jesus is, we were not born of fornication like you were. This is about as low as these men could go in taking a shot at Jesus. This is getting very, very personal. We all know that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary by a miracle of God. And uh, Mary became pregnant with Jesus before uh, Joseph brought her into his home to live with him as his wife. And we learn in Matthew's gospel that when Joseph himself heard of Mary's pregnancy, he initially assumed that Mary had been unfaithful to him which left him trying to figure out a way to break off the relationship until an angel appeared and set him straight and told him that a miracle of God had occurred in Mary's womb. When Jesus was born, it would have been duly noted by some that he was born less than nine months after Mary began living with Joseph in his house, giving rise, no doubt, to the rumor that Jesus was conceived as a product of some sexual sin on Mary's part. We know this rumor became an actual thing because in the second century AD, a critic of Christianity named Celsus suggested that Jesus was born as a result of an affair between Mary and a Roman soldier 
named Panthera. And sure enough, the Jewish Talmud and other medieval Jewish writings pick up this scandalous charge and refer to Jesus as Yeshu ben Pantera, which means Jesus, son of Pantera. And I think that here in verse 41, we're seeing an early expression of this nasty rumor in some form where these wicked Jewish leaders actually go there and passive aggressively say to Jesus, at least we were not born as a result of sexual sin like you were. That's what they're saying. And then they say to Jesus at the end of verse 41, we have one father, God. So now they are elevating beyond Abraham and claiming that their father is God. And the word we here is in the emphatic position, which indicates that these men are putting themselves forward in contrast to somebody that they are comparing themselves to, and it's Jesus. Essentially, they are saying to Jesus, we have one father, and he is God, as opposed to whoever your father might be. Well, Jesus has a swift reply to both of the claims that these men make in verse 41. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Jesus is saying to them, you claim that God is your father, but if that were true, you would actually love me. For I came from the very one whom you claim as your father. My father is not some man who is fornicating with Mary. My father is God, and it is from him that I have proceeded forth. He loves me. And if he were really your father, you would love me too, just like he does. That's what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus asks these men a question. In verse 43, he says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Literally, it's because you are not able to hear my word. Jesus is basically saying, Your lack of understanding of all that I have been saying to you about myself and about my father and about you reveals volumes about you. It shows that you are disabled in your hearing, rendering you incapable of hearing my word with an open and receptive heart as you ought. You have rejected the work of God's spirit in your hearts And in cutting yourself off from the Spirit, you have thereby cut yourself off from the only one who can truly give you the ability to rightly hear my word with an obedient and submissive heart. Now, why would Jesus say this to these men right now? I think he would have wanted these men to hear what he's saying and recognize their disability, to recognize their poverty of spirit, and then to confess 
their helplessness to God. That's the way they should have responded, but they don't respond this way at all. So Jesus continues to press his point about them and finally drops the ultimate truth bomb on them, which leads us to the fourth truth that Jesus speaks to his enemies to give them perspective on his father and their father. Number four, here it is, your father is the devil, which is why you don't believe me. Your father is the devil, which is why you don't believe me. It's in verse 44 where Jesus comes right out and says what he has been suggesting up to this point. Look at the text. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Wow, Jesus is literally telling them that their dad is the devil. And he's saying, the reason I know this is because you're wanting to do his desires and you're acting just like him and wanting to kill me. He continues in verse 44 saying about the devil, who is their father, he was a murderer, literally a man slayer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. How was the devil a manslayer from the very beginning? Well, he got Adam and Eve to partake of the forbidden fruit, which ultimately led to their death and the death of everyone that has followed ever since. Beyond that, it was the devil who inspired Cain to kill his brother Abel. And ever since, the devil has been behind every murderous thought and action all over the world. And it is the devil who is even now at work in the hearts of these religious leaders who are seeking to kill Jesus. Speaking of the devil, Jesus also says in verse 44 that their father, the devil, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. The devil is most at home in lies. Which is why Jesus goes on to say at the end of verse 44, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In our culture today, it seems that everyone wants to be their authentic selves. But according to what Jesus says here, the devil is one of the most authentic beings you would ever hope to meet. He is by nature a liar, and he always acts consistently with his nature. If the devil is true to anything, he is always true to his lying self. And not only is this fact true, but Jesus says that the devil is the father of lies. Every lie in existence throughout human history can trace its origin back to the devil, all the way back to the first lie that the serpent told Eve, saying, you shall not surely die. Every false religion, every false religious claim, every slanderous lie told about another person, every lie that any person ever tells was spawned by the devil. He's the father 
of lies. So if this is the devil's very nature, and the devil is the father of these religious leaders, and these religious leaders are wanting only to do the desires of their lying devil father, then imagine how they would respond to Jesus, who is the epitome of truth. It's just very predictable how they would respond. In fact, look at what Jesus says in verse 45, where he says, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. He's saying, you men believe the devil's lies over the truth I speak and recoiling like a snake away from the truth that I speak, you are acting just like the devil and revealing him to be your father. What Jesus says here had to be the heaviest thing that these men have ever heard. They're used to people praising them for the religious leaders that they were, and yet here is Jesus telling them that they're children of the devil. This had to have fallen hard on them, and for the moment, we actually see indication that it stuns them into silence, a silence so total that they can't even bring themselves to respond to the two questions that Jesus proceeds to ask them, which forces Jesus to answer his own questions for them and to pile on more revelation about these men. And this leads us to the fifth truth that Jesus speaks to his enemies to give them perspective on his father and their father. Number five, he basically says to them, you are not of God which is why you don't hear God's words. You are not of God, which is why you don't hear God's words. Listen to what Jesus says to them in verse 46. And let's remember that the drama here is not simply in what Jesus says, but also in the pauses. First, Jesus looks at these men and asks, which one of you convicts me of sin? Bring it on, he's asking. This is an audacious question that Jesus is asking that none of us would ever dare to ask of anyone, at least who knows us, right? If I ask this question of people who know me, every one of them could step forward and have plenty of sins to convict me of. But Jesus has no qualms about asking this question before this jury of men who despise him. Back in verse 29, Jesus speaks about the Father and says about himself, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always. That's a claim that no person could ever make except Jesus because Jesus was absolutely perfect in in every way throughout the entirety of his life. And here he puts this same truth before these men in the form of a question and he says to them, which one of you convicts me of sin. And there is little doubt that he gave them every opportunity to respond. Yet no man in this moment could bring up a single charge of wrongdoing that they would dare to mention against Jesus. 
after no one spoke up to convict Jesus of any sin, Jesus says next, if I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? In other words, if you can't convict me of any sin and I speak to you nothing but the pure truth, then why do you not believe me in what I say? Another lengthy pause and no answer from these men. Receiving no answer, Jesus answers his own questions and provides a piercing diagnosis of the condition of these men standing before him. In verse 47, he says, he who is of God hears the words of God, and for this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Jesus is saying that in order to hear the words of God as one ought to, like obediently and submissively, a person must be of God or literally out of God. In other words, they must be the recipients of a life that comes forth from God. They must be regenerated by God. And anyone who has been regenerated by God in this way can rightly hear the words of God coming from the mouth of Jesus. They hear Jesus' words obediently and with a submissive heart and ready to believe them. But these men do not hear the words of God for what they are because they do not have this life from God within them. The problem is that these men are spiritually dead. So these men are spiritually dead. They're spiritually deaf. They are not of God. And their father is the devil. And because of all this, they do not hear God's words for what they are. Even the very words of God coming at them through the Messiah who's standing right in front of them. You would think that what Jesus has said here would leave the men that he's talking to humbled and sobered, if not even frightened about the danger of their spiritual condition. But it's evident that his words do not have this effect on them at all, which only serves to illustrate how perilous their spiritual condition really is right now. They respond to Jesus' words with unparalleled meanness, leveling accusations against him that he then must respond to. And this leads us to the sixth and the final truth that Jesus speaks to his enemies to give them perspective on his father and their father. Number six, Jesus, here's basically the truth he gives them. I do not have a demon, but honor and seek the glory of my father. I do not have a demon, but honor and seek the glory of my father. You could actually word this a little differently. Have Jesus saying, I do not have a demon, but I honor the father who seeks my glory. But observe in verse 48 how the Jewish leaders respond to what Jesus has just said. Instead of crying out to Jesus and saying, Jesus, please save us from our condition. John says in verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, 
do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Just think about what is happening here. The long-awaited Messiah of the world is standing right in front of these religious leaders. He's absolutely sinless in every possible way. He's done countless miracles in healing the sick and the lame. He has told them that he is the light of the world and the son of man and the son of God and the great I am, that he is God himself. And he stands before these men speaking nothing but pure truth. And these men who have spent their lives studying their Bible that foretold of the coming of this one are sizing Jesus up. And they say here, this man is a demon-possessed Samaritan. It's absolutely astonishing that these men could so misunderstand the God of their scriptures that when that God comes and stands right in front of them, they think he's a demon-possessed Samaritan. And they say so out loud in front of him. To call a Jew a Samaritan is about as low of an insult as any that you could level at a Jew. The Samaritans, as many of you know, were the descendants of Jews who had remained in the northern kingdom after its fall to the Assyrians, and they intermarried with pagans who were transplanted there by the Assyrians over several centuries. The beliefs of the Samaritans were some parts Jewish with a whole lot of paganism mixed in which caused the Jews to view them as heretics. So in calling Jesus a Samaritan here, these men are spitting out an ethnic slur against Jesus, and they're also labeling him a heretic. Even further, to call Jesus a half-breed Samaritan may also be their way of suggesting that Jesus' mother had been immoral with a Samaritan man meaning that Jesus is a Samaritan with a Samaritan dad that his mother had been involved with. Either way, this is awful what they are saying to Jesus, and they don't stop here, but try to one-up Jesus. Jesus has just told them that they were of their father, the devil, so they throw it right back at Jesus and basically say, are we not absolutely correct when we say that you have a demon? They're saying the only way we can account for what you do and why you do what you do and why you talk the way you talk is to conclude that you're possessed of a demon. And so they're basically saying, so it's true, isn't it? Isn't it true that you're a demon-possessed Samaritan? What kind of question is that? It is so sad that Jesus would even have to respond to such a question, but amazingly, he does. Observe his reply in verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. 
Of all the words that Jesus ever spoke, this is the oddest thing for him ever to have to say. I do not have a demon. That's an actual quote from Jesus. Imagine those words of Jesus on a t-shirt. I do not have a demon. Of course he doesn't have a demon. He is the son of God and the being whom he is under the sway of is God the father. These men could not be more tragically wrong. Jesus answers their question and reading his words here in verse 49, you get the sense that he's more sad and brokenhearted than he is angry. He's grieved over how the lostness of these men, but also how his father is being dishonored by these men. Imagine that I'm talking to you all this morning and I'm trying to give honor to my parents and you hear me honoring my parents and then accuse me of being demon-possessed. If you did that, I would not merely take your words to be an insult to me, but I would take your words to be an insult against my parents whom I was trying to honor, right? Well, that's how Jesus takes the words of these men here. So he says, I I do not have a demon. I'm just honoring my father and you dishonor me while I am seeking to honor him, which means that you are dishonoring my father. In verse 50, Jesus says, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. In other words, Jesus is saying, there is one who seeks my glory, and that's my Father, and he will get what he is seeking. And I will leave that in his hands, and he is the one who will judge all those who do not give to me the glory that he seeks. Me. This is Jesus in a very awful, hurtful moment, falling back upon truth, speaking it out loud, not only for the benefit of these men, but even for the benefit of his own heart. Instead of stopping this morning in verse 50, let's just take a quick peek into verse 51. You would think that Jesus would be prepared to breathe fire against these men at this point, but amazingly, that's not what he does. Instead, in the very next verse, look at verse 51. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, to you men who are being so spiteful against me, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death This is amazing grace from Jesus toward these undeserving men. After all of their hatefulness toward him, he still appeals to them to hear his words and to treasure them. And he promises that if they respond rightly to his words, they will live forever and they will never die. And we'll pick up here next Sunday 
But I just want us to appreciate this morning how Jesus doesn't cease to love these men who were being so hateful against him. Instead, he speaks to them this wonderful word of promise. If perchance what he says to them might lead to the salvation of anyone among them. Let's be like Jesus. Let's be brave enough to speak truth to the lost, even when they might be nasty and spiteful against us and against our Savior. And let's be humble and gracious enough to keep loving them and calling them to believe in Christ. And as we do this, let's not be surprised when we encounter people who utterly despise the Jesus of the Bible. We all here at Cornerstone love Jesus so much that it's, it's unnerving. It's unsettling for us to witness conversations like we see in this text and encounter men who look at Jesus and conclude that he's evil and that he's possessed of a demon And he's a man that they think should just be killed and gotten rid of. But what is happening here in John 8 prepares us for the fact that you and I will encounter people who view Jesus in the same way. Who have the same dark view of the Jesus of the Bible. The anti-theist Christopher Hitchens was a recent example of this mindset. He did not merely deny the divinity of Jesus. He actually called Jesus, and I quote, a sorcerer and a fanatic, unquote. The philosopher Frederick Nietzsche hated Christianity and once said, and I quote, the Christian idea of God is one of the most corrupt conceptions of God the world has ever seen, unquote. For this reason, he viewed Christianity as the great scourge of society. And there are a growing number of people in our world today who view society's greatest problem as Christianity. They view Christianity as an evil that the world would be better off being purged of. They view Christian morality as bigoted and hateful and harmful to society. So we should not be surprised if those very people who hate Christ will view us who bear his name as a scourge to society and will say mean and nasty things against us, just as the men do with Jesus in our text today. After all, Jesus tells us in John fifteen eighteen that if the world hates us, it hated him before it hated us. How should we respond in such moments? Well, when people are being hateful against you and against your Savior, don't compromise and don't back down. Don't compromise the truth. Love them. Love your enemies and love them enough to speak the truth to them And keep pointing them to Christ and his word. And follow the counsel of Paul in 2 Timothy 2. Write this reference down. 2 Timothy 2 verses 24 to 26. When Paul says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, 
but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. See, don't be mad at people who are simply acting like people who are captive to the will of the devil. Have mercy on them and love them with the truth. Paul's words in 2 Timothy is great counsel for all of us as we seek to point people incessantly to Jesus as their one and only hope. It's what people did for us, right? When we were lost in our sin and God showed his grace to us by sending people to our lives who loved us enough to speak truth to us when we were unlovely. So point people to Christ as their only hope. And along these lines, let's, let's uh, just kind of taking a bird's eye view of our text for this morning, let's remember that this part of the conversation that we've looked at today started with these men making a claim about themselves. In verse 33, saying, we are Abraham's offspring. So they put that out there before Jesus, indicating that these men were banking their salvation on something other than Christ. They were banking their salvation on the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. They thought that because they were the offspring of Abraham, they were good. They were set. They didn't need any saving from Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Well, he immediately knocks out from underneath these men the very thing that they were basing their salvation on and then shows them how what they ought to be thinking about is how they're responding to him and what their relation is to him. In fact, in our passage today, you can track this. Jesus identifies four problems with these men and all four of them have to do with him. In verse 40, he says, you're seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Second, in verse 37, he says, my word has no place in you. Third, in verse 43, he says, you cannot hear my word. And fourth, in verse 45, he says, you do not believe me. Notice how all the fatal flaws that Jesus points out in these men have to do with how they're responding to him, even though they were the biological offspring of Abraham. What we learn here is that at the end of the day, a person's salvation is determined solely by their relation to Jesus and what they do with Jesus and his word. So perhaps you're here today and you're basing your salvation on something other than Jesus. Maybe you're banking on the fact that you're a good person or you're better than most. Maybe your faith is in some other person or some other belief system of another religion. Perhaps you're banking on the fact that you come from a Christian home and you serve in the church. But at the end of the day, the true measure of where your soul is at is determined simply by how you respond to Jesus. So I ask you this morning, is there a place in your heart 
for the words of Jesus? Do you believe Jesus in whatever he speaks? Do you believe him when he tells you that apart from him, you are a slave of sin? Do you welcome him into your life and heart? Do you believe him when he tells you that he is the Messiah and the great liberator, the son of God and the son of man and the great I am and the light of the world and that if you follow him, you will have the light of life. I hope your answer to those questions is yes because ultimately your salvation hinges on what you do with Jesus. And finally, let me just say this, what you do with Jesus has everything to do with who your father is. So I ask you this morning, who's your father? Is your father God or is your father the devil? Our passage this morning helps you to know how you can answer that question. Jesus says in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. In verse 47, he says, he who is of God hears the words of God. So there's your test. Do you love Jesus and hear the word of God as it comes from him? In verses 44 and 45, Jesus teaches that if you do not believe Jesus, and you do not embrace his words, then that means the devil is your father. There are only two options here. If you are of your father, the devil, this morning, though, I am happy to tell you that God is in the business of robbing the devil of his children and adopting them for himself and bringing them into his own family and there's nothing that the devil can do to stop that when God chooses to do that not to brag or anything but our heavenly father can overpower the devil anytime and any place he chooses whenever he chooses to save a soul and he does that all the time when he plucks people from the devil's clutches and brings them into his very own arms. It's what he did to me. It's what he did to so many of you in this room. I'm here to tell you this morning that even if the devil has been your father up to this point, Jesus can free you from that relationship. You may be a child of wrath and ensnared by the devil when you came into this building this morning But if you come to Jesus and believe in him, you will discover on the other side of believing in Jesus and calling upon his name that God is the one who enabled you to do that. And you will discover that God has become your father. And you will find that life with God as your father is far better than having the devil as your dad. Because the devil is murderous. He's a murderer and a liar who deceives and kills his children. But God is a good father who gives life and love and peace and eternal relationship and blessing to all those who are born of him.
And that's a father worth glorifying. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, this has been a challenging passage to wade through as we witness just the horrid things that these enemies of our Lord Jesus are speaking to him. And yet we see Jesus displaying such grace and truth under fire. And he stays on point. And speaks nothing but needed truth to these men. We thank you for his example. Help us, Lord, to be like him. And as I witness this exchange in this passage, I'm thankful for all the ways that you look past and through my hatefulness and hatred and wickedness and sin. And you did not cast me off, but pursued me in love and eventually won my rebel heart to you. And I know I speak for many in just giving praise to you this morning for the good and gracious king that you are, the good and gracious father that you are. But help us, Lord, to mirror the very heart of Jesus and how we engage with others about Jesus in this world where there is a growing, festering hostility to our Lord and Savior, that you would use us, Lord, to snatch some from the flames and that souls would be saved and your name would be glorified. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,